Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome again for another week. Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, the place to go, episode 123. How's that, Mark? Um, Friday, February the 21st, 2020. And gee, I was just hearing some exciting news about an upcoming potential trip Mark is going on, and um, we won't talk about where it is. We'll keep our listeners in the dark, Mark, But um, and I think I've got one or two interesting places to go to this year, so some exciting things and yeah i think that's what we should sort of chat about mark the the pros and cons of travel um and particularly airline flights etc let's talk about air, air flights and the you know the 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 shame the shaming of of, of flying mark and um, using up all that um airline fuel um my bit and my my rationalization for it mark is that um when I deserve a break sometimes, <laughs> and I like I like travelling, and two, I certainly tick and um, pay the for the carbon credits with. Um, well, I mainly f- fly with Qantas, and they allow you to pay a little bit extra, um, separate from the fare, to sort of um, help out with the carbon credits. And um, yeah, um, apart from that, you know, I haven't got much um, to sort of um, say. I, maybe I should be sitting on a boat and rowing myself out to some of these places, but I certainly don't have the time or the money or the strength to do that, Mark. Um, what's your thoughts on the whole, um, you know, um, don't fly and, um, you know, try and save the planet? Um, well, I think thoughts? it's um, – I, I, I have the same um, twin – uh, drives that you have that I do want to save the planet. I don't want to be part of the problem, but I also want to go to many, many special places and see many, many special things in the wild. Um, so, so those two things are um, are a little bit, um, you know, conflicting, mutually exclusive. And I'm like you. I I try wherever it's possible to um, formally, and I, as you mentioned, quantum. Qantas and Virgin, as far as I know, are the the um, main Australian airlines who provide you with the option of uh, of uh, uh, um, doing uh, paying for carbon offsets. Um, and um, and interestingly enough, I, I as I, as far as I understand it, maybe ten percent of um, passengers who fly on those airlines actually do um, do tick. The box and uh, pay the extra. So it, it's not just you and I that um, that uh, feel the same problem. I think I think it's a bit of a general thing, and I really can't wait for the time when you know when we have vast solar farms uh, producing um, carbon-free hydrogen that uh, is burnt in new engines in planes, not unlike the ones we're in at the moment. And uh, and the only emission they uh, provide to the atmosphere is a little bit of water. Um, I reckon that would be a um, a future that I would uh, I would rejoice in travelling, and I'd be happy not to tick the box for carbon offsets if that was yes. the way it was. And I'm always I'm always amazed at airline travel how they've managed to market it as a 
as an aspirational product sitting in a tin can, you know, for hours and hours and getting average food most of the time and um, developing deep vein thrombosis, Mark, and, and getting off the other end um, grumpy and then having to deal with customs people. And yet um, they've been very, very good at promoting it, haven't they, as, as, as this amazing experience and an, and an adventure in itself. Um, but but having said that, they've sold me <laughs> a fair few times and I, I, of, I often use, um, well, I, that's what I use my um, frequent flyer points um, when I managed to crank up enough of them to um, treat myself and upgrade to a business class seat in some of these trips that I go on. Um, and uh, I must admit, when I managed to save and, and do that, it is um, it does feel quite good doing it. Um, and um, yeah, you get a good sleep and um, I enjoy it. But having said that, you're still on a tin can flying across um, the planet, Mark. Um, so, yes, um, maybe we should pr- be using some of their promotional methods to promote our vet clinics, Mark. <laughs> oh, well, certainly our podcast. Yes, that's right. Well, I don't know whether we can um, ever get our pod- podcast off the ground, Mark, <laughs> so to speak. But, um, yes, so um, that's enough for um, airline um, travel um, this week. And, um, yes, we will talk to you, our listeners about um, where we are going to or have been as we um as we do the trips this year because yeah we have some interesting places that hopefully both of us will end up seeing and um seeing some interesting animals and, and people yeah i'm going to jump into my have you i don't think you we have a review this week mark do you have a review no no i reckon we're straight this is going to be a punchy one brendan straight into our that's articles. right let's pu- let's punch so my first and only news story mark is coming from positive.news um, as I'm trying to be positive more and more and it is about Street Vet which is a social enterprise that helps homeless pet owners in the UK and it works with 300 volunteer vets and nurses who cover eight cities in the south of England and in the north the Street Paws charity also deploys 175 volunteers at 18 locations and both organisations were formed in 2016 initially and I think this was a very good idea Mark it was an outreach clinic based at soup kitchens so they would turn up to the soup kitchens where homeless people mainly would attend um, for, to help them out and give, get a free meal and they would treat the dr- dogs mostly that they um, that the street people had and um, they would provide them with um, everything from health checks vaccinations flea and worm in treatments and um, they estimated that it was costing around about 110 pounds per year to treat each dog um, but I think they did say that they occasionally did treat other animals there Mark including I, I'm trying to find it but I, I think they mentioned something like including a, a spider that somebody had who was living on the street <laughs> which is not unsurprising um, as their pet uh, but it's a great idea um, and they, they they managed to they never charge obviously um, for the people that are struggling and they managed to fund it through donations and also um, the commercial enterprises that supply the food and the collars etc um, and the worm products as well with the um, veterinary industry and the pharmaceutical industry provide them with the with the um, all the um, all the equipment and all the um, 
drugs, etc., um, to treat these animals. So it's a great idea. I don't know whether we have anything equivalent here in Australia, Mark. Do you know of anything? I'm not aware of anything, but uh, but I, if there is, I'd be keen to know about it. And um, because I think that um, it's an outstanding uh, program. I think that we, you know, one of the I always look for ways as veterinarians that we can make the world a better place. And there are some situations where it's a, a bit difficult to, um, you know, for us to know directly as veterinarians how we can make a difference. But certainly for uh, people who are, are homeless or particularly indigent, um, then the animals really form a, a very a crit- sometimes critical component of their you know, quality of life, and uh, um, and it is often very difficult for them to um, provide the level of care that ensures that the animal's not going to have any problems. And if we can be a part of a of something that makes that the case, I think that's an outstanding contribution for veterinarians to make. Definitely, and perhaps it's something that we, you and I, should chat offline about, um, seeing if we can get something going here in Australia, Mark. And um, your comment about that they're often um, rely and, and and love their animals, their pets that they have there is is pointed out in the article there um, and their, their comment that it is a myth that dogs are used by homeless people to make money, which is what most uh, a lot of people think. Um, and the quote is, people go without food so they can feed their dogs um, that they um, care so much about them, these people that don't have a home. And because most hostels don't accept dogs, Mark, owners have to sleep rough in order to stay together with their animals. So um, I think it sort of compounds the problem there. So it's it's a great um a great feel-good article, Mark. Um, he's um, from this street vets work um, where they work with all these hundreds of vet um, volunteer vets and nurses um, to help out people who um, are doing it tough. So, yeah, that's my that's my news item, Mark. What have you got? Um, my item um, is uh, concerns. Well, it's I don't know how to segue neatly to it, but um, I'll just come out with the the uh, the lead. Um, it's an article about primate venom, um, and it says that the the said primate venom sheds light on why so many people suffer cat allergies, and uh, it's a great piece of well initial research. I suppose it's one of those types of research which. Um, uh, announces something that's a, a new bit of information, which leads to a whole lot of uh, potential hypotheses and um, a new questions, and uh, leads the research in a new direction. So, this particular bit of research is led uh, is uh, has been done by an international team, but led by um, an, uh, an Australian researcher, uh, the University of Queensland's associate professor Brian Fry, who is a bit of a personality in the, um, you know, the toxinology um, uh, research space. Um, And uh, the research particularly looked at slow lorises, which are the only known primates uh, which uh, have venom. And crikey, there's been almost no research, according to uh, Dr. Fry, about um, about these very special animals. They're... they're, um, they're, uh, 
used that they illegally introduced into the uh, illicit pet trade, um, but um, but yeah, science has sort of not looked at some of these uh, very strange, unusual features and. The, the venom is uh, an interesting one that um, the slow lorises have uh, venom in their saliva, um, which causes um, uh, wounds in the, an- the animals and humans that uh, um, uh, hurt them or play with them. Um, and uh, those wounds are like notoriously slow to heal. Um, but e- when humans are bitten, um, the victim will go further than that and um, will display symptoms as if they're going into um, some form of anaphylactic shock. Um, So his lab uh, studied the chemicals, the DNA sequences of the proteins in slow loris venom, um, and they discovered that it's, well, highly analogous, virtually identical, they say, um, to the allergenic protein that's in our domestic cat saliva. Um, and, uh, you know, we know that cats secrete and coat themselves with this protein. Um, and many people, uh, particularly people who work in veterinary hospitals who are sensitized to it, um, they can develop an allergy to it, sometimes quite a significant allergy to that protein. Um, the researchers have put together a theory that um, since the protein is being used as a defensive weapon in slow lorises, maybe the use in cats as a um, is an as a you know surface allergen is also a defensive weapon that um, the fact that so many people are allergic to cats might not just be a evolutionary coincidence it might be something that's been selected for in the wild as a defense against predators though I don't know the the very fast anaphylactic type reaction that occurs in slow loris bites um, is is rather more dangerous than the bloody, itchy, sneezy um, allergic reaction that occurs, uh, at least in the people that I work with that are allergic to cats. What do you think, Brendan? Well, I think it's ironic that slow lorises use their venom to fight with other slow lorises, causing very slow-to-heal wounds, Mark. (laughs) I thought that was um, quite interesting, and um, I expect that it will be slow for this research to develop um, something (laughs) of use as well. So that's Um, that's my summary of this um, particular thing. But, yes, um, uh, it is fascinating where where research ends up... um, what direction um, people end up taking, um, and and it's so, it's those people who investigate these sort of things that you think, gee, that they just think outside the box, don't they? About um, about um, the subject in hand, and um, you and I have discussed this before. That um, I think there is a particular mindset that leads people to. You know, I, I often call it the genius factor that they come at a problem yes. from a non-linear. You know, their mind jumps around and makes connections that, well, people like me that are bog standard, you know, plodders, um, we just go from that one thought before to the most logical next thought and continue that pattern ad nauseum. Um, whereas it's, you know, and our profession, I've, I've got to say that um, our professional lives has, has given me um, experience of meeting some of those effervescent, um, you know, 
genius, genii. Um, and, um, and that's one of the, yeah, pleasures of being part of our profession, I think. But, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, you, I don't know about you, you, you're a bit in that direction. You come at things from odd angles, but there ain't going to be anything ever that I discover brand spanking you out of the ether, Brendan. Nothing ever happens with my thoughts. They're just crazy thoughts, Mark. That's all I can say. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. And it's good to meet a genie or two, isn't it, Mark? It's amazing when you meet those people and you think, gee, um, I, f- I find it both inspirational and quite depress- depressing <laughs> um, when I meet people like that. I think, God, I'm dumb, you know, <laughs> when I see people like that. Um, Okay, well, let's jump on to our main topic, Mark. We were going to keep it punchy, and um, it is, well, it's another Let's Quiz Mark um, event um, for this week. And we're talking about an interesting one, and, and we have a couple of colleagues here in Australia who've, who've done a lot of the original research on this, haven't they, Mark? And that's pancreatitis in parrots. And we'll, we'll probably just keep it confined to parrot species because they're the ones that are most commonly will be diagnosed with this condition in practice, I expect. And um, yeah, how, how common is this condition, Mark? Pancreatitis in parrot, parrots? And I, I think some of our listeners who don't deal with birds very often would think, what what the heck, you know, do you see pancreatitis and, and what's the story with it? Well, I think I, in my circumstance, uh, we consider it very, very common. Um, and I think there's several, um, you know, um, it, it's interesting that you uh, mention, and I'm, I'll, you know, I've got to pay uh, homage to uh, our good friend, Dr. Bob Donnelly, who uh, did a, publish a paper in the uh, Australian Veterinary Journal several years ago about this precise topic. And in the typical way of a new topic, um, when uh, I, um, Bob did a presentation on this and I read his article, um, you, you know when you go away to a conference and that happens and then you see the cases over and over again. Um, and and I don't think it was just because I think I was being like negligent before in not seeing the obvious. Um, and so I think it is a very, very common condition in the birds we see. Yes, you're seeing them, but you're just not knowing that you see them. It's uh, not knowing, um, not um, not the not seeing, Mark, yes. So, well, since you're seeing them now, what are the signs? What do these <laughs> birds present with? Well, the signs are unsurprisingly um, the same sorts of things that we see with pancreatitis in all the species that get it. Um, the birds that get it have uh, cranial abdominal pain. It's often a noticeable, you can palpate them uh, in the small space between the sternum and the, um, the bones of the pelvis. Um, and in some of these species that that space might be only a little bit bigger than, um, you know, the, the size of your index finger in width, um, but definitely on the bird's um, uh, right-hand side, um, particularly more cranial in that space, you can definitely um, uh, feel the birds flinch uh, see that their respiratory rate increases as you touch that area. They're obviously um, more urgently trying to move your hand or bite you when you um, palpate that area. Um, and uh, before you pick them up, they're often uh, presented for exactly the sorts of reasons that you would expect, um, that uh, that they are vomiting or regurgitating, that they've gone off their food, that they're um, displaying the typical signs of birds that are sick, they're fluffed up, they're, um, uh, you know, um, 
uh, less active. Vocalizing less is a big one, Brendan. We know that in birds in general, uh, coelomic pain is uh, responded to by the birds by stop uh, by a cessation of vocalization. The birds. Uh, have to because they don't have a diaphragm. They have to put up, apply pressure to the whole coelom to generate uh, the the uh, air movement in the syrinx to make a noise. And um, and so if there's pain in the abdomen, the birds will definitely be quiet. Um, so gastrointestinal function uh, dysfunction um, and all those signs of pain, um, they're sort of the you know I suppose the classic signs in any species. Yes. Now, we've all probably learnt and remember acute pancreatitis and chronic pancreatitis in our dogs and cats because we were taught it at university, Mark, and we all we all have seen that in practice. If we've, um, Well, probably everybody who's been in practice has seen that. Do, do, does it occur acutely or chronically or both? Um, what's, what's the common, common um, time frame with these? Well, I think that's a uh, – and as usual, Brendan, you've come up with an insightful question and, um, and the answer to it probably reveals how useless I am. The majority of cases <laughs> – I, I get uh, that I find are acute. Um, they are birds that, you know, someone has called up and the bird is uh, has just started vomiting and is fluffed up and was fine until a minute ago. But in in now that I suppose we've been looking at these cases for a few years, I think that a lot of the chronic cases um, – the, the birds do a great job of concealing the signs. So I think there are chronic cases um, and we're probably not identifying them as well as we should, um, but they're, the, the vast majority of them, because they're associated with those most obvious signs, regurgitation, um, uh, um, other signs of pain, they're, they're, they're generally acute cases. Yes. So... You mentioned diagnosis. So, how do we go about? So, what what would your approach to be that suspected pancreatitis parrot that comes into the clinic? What what's your thoughts on what what do you jump for? What test do you do, Mark? Well, um, the, the, I'm often with many birds that have uh, abdominal discomfort. I do de- do really want to make sure that I regularly get some imaging done, um, and so I would be routinely taking radiographs. Radiographs are probably m- more useful for ruling things out, um, but we definitely, in the very very severe cases, we definitely have that ground glass appearance of uh, inflammation in the viscera. Surrounding the area that the pancreas is in, so um, radiographs would be the first. Blood work, they it is regularly the case that uh, that these birds are hyperamylasemic, um, that they have high levels of circulating circulating amylase in their blood. Um, of course, just like other species, there is a, an overlap. Birds that have a and enteritis will also get a rise in um, in amylase. The amylase is released from those tissues. But we often find um, the pancreatitis birds are, um, you know, they get a real spike, um, uh, uh, 2,500 um, uh, international units of, um, it's international units, I think. But anyway, um, those sorts of numbers will give us a good clue that, um uh, that we've got an excessive, excessively high level. And when we draw the blood, and, and it is international units per litre, I just um, uh, confirmed in my mind, um, 
there's also a, a, um, a moderate, um, moderately elevated white cell count in those blood samples, uh, reflecting the inflammatory process in the pancreas at the time. Um, I do occasionally and increasingly uh, commonly now um, uh, try and get a, a, a biopsy. Um, uh, I try and use the uh, our uh, endoscope to get into the pancreas and get a little pinch of it. Um, I'm always, you know, whenever you're taking pancreatic biopsies, you have to be careful that the inflammation you cause isn't as bad as the inflammation that's already there. But um, I have been using the endoscope to get in and, and try and get a little pinch biopsy of the pancreas to confirm the diagnosis by histopathology. Yes. How challenging or easy or difficult do you find that mark it doing varies. that procedure it varies um and there certainly are times that um you know the vast majority of uh coelomic access for my endoscopy comes through that left para uh, lumbar fossa and the, obviously i have to go in the opposite side and probably slightly move the access point to get to the area of the pancreas there are some people who um like feel more comfortable um, just making a little incision through the the um, abdominal musculature and uh, visualizing without an endoscope the the pancreas and it and it will often sit in um, you know just on the surface of the the um, the viscera between the the uh, cranial abdominal air sacs on the right hand side so it's usually as long as there's not too much inflammation, it's usually reasonably easy to visualise and get access to. And for those people who don't have the equipment or they're too too scared or don't want to go that route, Mark, um, do you think that you, they would be missing a fair few of them um, by not doing the biopsy or, or can you manage to, to pick most of them up with, with those clinical signs and the other diagnostic tests like the blood you've done? Yeah, no, I I definitely would, uh, in my case, would be treating the vast majority of cases without getting the biopsy to confirm what's going on. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it's always, uh, um, as veterinarians, it's good to get that confirmation of our diagnosis. The more uh, information we have, the better off we are. Um, but I think it is a good thing for us to, um, you know, if we've got, if we're, going to have an extended anesthetic and access to the uh, the body cavity, that's a fairly big in, in uh, intervention. And um, sometimes I don't think that's always necessary before you proceed to some treatment. Yes. So I suppose you, another way of putting it would be the gold standard, I suppose, would be getting, getting a sample of that pancreas for the histo um, with those ones. Would that be... Good way yeah, to put it. I reckon your your psychom yeah. skills are, are getting better all the time, <laughs> Brandon. Okay, so we've we've got this tentative diagnosis or this or this quite strong indication that we have pancreatitis in this bird. What do we do, Mark? What's the treatment? And and related to that, what's the what's the prognosis? How many of these do you get better? And you know, do you give the do you tell the client it's doom and gloom, or are they all mostly going to get better or half half what's a, what's the go what's the go the go is that most of them get better and the good thing from my point of view at least is that um the the 
clients that are generally motivated enough to get to this point, um, they're generally motivated enough to do the other things that um, that need to be done to lessen the likelihood of, um, of you know, ongoing problems. Um, and there's no doubt that uh, um, just as in other species, um, diet plays a significant role in the predisposing factors that um, the birds that have uh, diets that are uh, um, that put a lot of pressure on the pancreas, that are uh, rich in carbohydrates and fats. Um, the birds that do end up with um, uh, uh, with uh, uh, large deposits of fat in the body and birds that are reproductively active because they're on relatively high uh, energy diets, um, those birds are predisposed to these sorts of problems. Um, and the things that we would you know, the things that you and I endlessly talk about to the uh, boredom of all the people that listen to us, um, that if we manage those husbandry things, then uh, so many of these health issues tend to slip by the by. Um, so there certainly is a whole bunch of husbandry things. But for the acute cases, we do the same sorts of things that we would do for um, for our dogs, for example. We want to provide them with um, fairly aggressive pain relief. Um, we want to generally, with these birds, we're hospitalising them and giving them um, uh, uh, doses of opioid analgesia. Um, so I would frequently use butorphanol. You know, that's my... Uh, one of my go-to um, yes. analgesics for birds. Um, we would couple that with um, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs after we were satisfied that the birds had been adequately um, restored to normal fluid balance so there was no pressure on the kidneys. Um, we would probably not be routinely using antibiotics. Um, uh, my The cases that where we have had histopathologic confirmation of the diagnosis, uh, bacteria have not been a significant feature of the disease. Um, I, I very frequently use, when we first started working with these cases and getting this diagnosis, I would regularly use metoclopramide, um, but um, that's probably been... You know, there certainly are cases where I would use that still where the birds are um, uh, have ongoing vomiting. Um, but most of the time I find that the vomiting settles pretty quickly once we settle the pain down. So um, uh, metoclopramide's on the shelf still, but I would be using it less frequently for these cases. It's interestingly that we use it less frequently in our small mammals as well now, Mark, don't we? Um, that particular drug for, for gut-related problems. Um, so it's basically supportive care is what you're saying then, Mark. What about fluids? I think fluid therapy, the nature of the pancreas um, trapping those uh, um, in pro-inflammatory chemicals and um, the blood vessels uh, leading from the pancreas clamping off more and shutting the organ down, um, that whole process as it happens in dogs, um, similarly happens in our birds. And so making sure they're adequately hydrated is um, critical. And where with many birds we would, you know, slip a, a crop ch a, a tube into the crop um, and give them fluids that way. Obviously, these birds uh, can't have that happen, and so we do need to um, either supply them with um, subcutaneous fluids or um, intravenous fluids to ensure that hydration. 
Typically, and I know this is a bit of a how long is a piece of string question, how, how long would they take to recover? How long would um, you have them in the hospital, for instance? Ah, and, for and you are. It's a good question and, and it is a little bit of a, you know, there'll be ones that respond um, more quickly. There's definitely is a, I suppose, one thing that happens in my mind is that the, the um, there are a class of these pancreatitis birds that are the result of um, inflammation, salomic inflammation that's extended from an inflamed ovary. So those female birds that have a, a um, distinct oophoritis, um, the anatomy of the abdomen will mean that the pancreas can sympathetically uh, be uh, induced to an inflammatory state by that. Those birds do take longer in my experience, but the birds that are, um, you know, that are obese, inactive, um, and fed a fat diet, um, and uh, it's a direct, their pancreatitis is a direct result of that. Those birds do tend to um, bounce pretty quickly in my experience, and so we're normally talking about those birds being in hospital for between one and three days before they go home on those husbandry changes and, and analgesia at home. Yes. Now, you may have mentioned it, but I can't remember whether whether you did a couple of minutes ago. The the average, uh, the percentage of these that do really well. I think you said a fair fair percentage of them recover from that initial initial um, event. Yeah, um, I, I you know, um, I I probably need to go through my records, write them up better to start with and uh, and then collate more data from them. Um, but if I was to uh, to sort of make a suggestion, I'd, I'd be thinking that well over 80% of them respond well and get better. It's a, it's a good, once you've got a diagnosis in these birds, they are good ones to treat. Great. So you've already half covered prevention mark because you jumped into it a little bit before and that's concentrating on the husbandry and I think by the sound of it you're particularly interested in what diet they are feeding their birds and because that has a huge factor to pay, play with the, the the cases that you see. Yes and there is one just before we left treatment Brendan I did want to mention one other quick thing um, in the wonderful initial work that um uh, our Dr. Donnelly did. He did use, um, and I think Brian Spear uh, over in the US has uh, done the same sort of thing where they've employed uh, an, um, the uh, omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids in particular ratios um, to, uh, to treat um, inflammation in various tissues in the body um, that, you know, there is at least some uh, scientific data to suggest that um, that if you use these things, that um, maybe uh, various tissues will be better off. Um, I I I can't say. I always have had a bit of a fear of you know putting oils into animals that have acute pancreatitis. And despite my huge respect for uh, Dr. Bob and and his uh, his processes. Uh, I can't say that the birds where I have done that um, that I can detect a significant difference in the outcome. So I don't routinely use the fatty acid treatments to try and decrease the inflammation. I depend on my uh, opiates and on steroidals. Um, the the husbandry stuff we were talking about is oh crikey's I worry that people are going to be 
bored out of their cotton-picking minds by the way that we keep returning to these topics. But I, it's it's exactly as it would um, it would appear that if we can get these birds to um, decrease their caloric intake, increase their levels of activity, um, increase through those increased levels of activity lead to better um, circula- circulation, better cardiovascular health, um, then all those things feed back into a decreased likelihood of this problem. The birds that we see this happen very frequently to that are probably disproportionately represented are um, lorikeets. Lorikeets certainly are one of the species who have very complex energy uh, um, requirements um, that they in the wild they fly vast distances they are hugely fit birds in the wild um, and of course you know they, they naturally consume large quantities of um, of a variety of uh, you know, moderately uh, simple carbohydrates um, and so when they get vast quantities of those in in a captive situation with no um, exercise and um, and the carbohydrates are even simpler than what they get in the wild, um, then then those birds are particularly at risk of this condition. Their pancreas does seem to be a bit more sensitive to that. So getting them to forage, feeding them uh, a more reasonable caloric intake, um, encouraging them to exercise, whether it be through free flight or um, uh forcing the foraging around their very large enclosure. These are all good husbandry things that lessen the likelihood of pancreatitis. Yes, and it's nothing new, is it, Mark? Um, as you say, it's it's what we talk about all the time as far as um, preventative health with, with not just the avian species but the reptiles and the small mammals as well. Um, before we close this punchy episode, Mark, can you name the two species off the top of your head that you would see um, with pancreatitis in your clinic? Definitely. Two, two most common. Oh, definitely the lorikeets I've already mentioned, but the the um, the, the cockatoos, galahs and uh, sulfur-crested cockatoos, we, we, these are species that um, we regularly see pancreatic disease in. And I've got That's one... Three. That's three species, Mark. Um, you've failed. Oh, as usual. <laughs> there is one other um, quick point while we're talking about those species um, that's worth mentioning, trying to keep it punchy, is that um, I reckon that a significant number, one of the key clues that we might be missing some of those chronic pancreatitis cases is um, that the incidence of exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, and we'll probably talk about that in more detail in a future podcast, I do warn veterinarians who start to diagnose this disease in birds and see them get better, um, which is very gratifying, just to be aware that those birds are definitely at risk of, um, of EPI in the future. The damage to the pancreas can definitely lead to that condition in the future in those birds. Yes, great point, and we will. I've just jotted that down, Mark. We will cover that in a future episode. But not this week, so we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. 
Thanks again and see you next time. 